0: I love faithful people. Do you love faithful people? Are you a faithful person? Ask yourself that question. Uh, You know, people come and go when you're part of a church, you've got people, especially a church that's been around as long as Wooden Valley, you've got people that come and people that go and sometimes God brings them and God takes them and sometimes they get before God leads, uh, leads them to leave. But, uh, every once in a while, you got people like the McTurnan's and the Oldzacs and people that are just faithful, and I appreciate that. I love it, and I think it's a blessing Our church would not be here if it were not for the faithfulness. By the way, if you're a newcomer or you're a, a young buck like me, make sure you tell these older people and these people who have been around for a while, thank you for your faithfulness. I didn't mean older I meant uh I meant. More experienced people. There we go. More experienced people that have a little more faithfulness than the rest of us. Let them know that you appreciate. Uh, I, I'm scared to death of what could happen to this church if people stopped being faithful, you know. And so be mindful of that. Think of that. And uh, when you see somebody like the Gascoines, let them know you appreciate their faithfulness. And uh, the McTurnans, I appreciate your faithfulness. Thank you so much for that. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. If you'll go there. We'll finish up in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and go right into Ecclesiastes chapter 2 tonight, and uh, we'll just read one verse, but we're going to cover a lot tonight, and that doesn't mean it's necessarily going to be a long sermon, uh, but uh, we're definitely going to cover a lot of content tonight, and I just want to be honest, uh, and I'll say a little bit about this as we get into the message, even towards the latter part, this is a little bit bigger than I am. Uh, I mean, everything is bigger than I am when it comes to the Word of God. That's my attitude, is that this is a big deal, but specifically the topic that I'm going to be covering tonight and towards the end of the message, uh, I'm a little nervous. Uh, I'm always nervous when I come to preach, but I'm especially nervous tonight, so if you'd pray for me, I'd appreciate it, because it's a very big deal, and it's something that Satan is using in even our church to uh, have his way, I don't want to spoil it, but he'll have his way with people in this area and it's a big deal. And so uh, just be mindful of that tonight. If you'd pray for me, I'd appreciate it. Ecclesiastes chapter one and verse 16, one verse and then we'll get into tonight's message. The first verse is verse number 16 that I'd like to read tonight. And again, we'll just use this to kind of get in to the message tonight. Uh, I communed with mine own heart, saying, lo, I am come to great estate and I've gotten more wisdom than all they that have been before me in Jerusalem. Yea, my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Tonight for just a few moments, I'd like to talk to you about this subject in light of our text. How many of you are note takers? Are you ready for the title? I don't know if we'll have it on the screen, I'll say it slowly. Tonight I'd like to talk to you about Schizophrenic Solomon in the series of self-deception. All right, Schizophrenic Solomon And the series of self-deception. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, I pray that you'd be with me in a special way tonight. Uh, I need your power, as I always do, but especially tonight, I need your power and your grace, uh, and and I need you to speak through me tonight, Lord, in a way that uh, you've not done before, uh, because I'm nervous about what I'm talking about tonight. I think that it's a big deal, and I think that there's several people who are struggling with something uh, and I'd like to be a blessing to them, and I'd like your spirit to speak to them, uh, to them tonight. So I'm asking you, if you would put me away, put me to the side, and if you would come through, and uh, maybe uh, if, if I would just not butcher it tonight and, and fumble over my words or fumble over the text or fumble over uh, the outline tonight, I don't wanna, uh, I'm not talking about anything that's gonna make me look good, but I don't wanna fumble the ball tonight. I pray that you'd be with me in a special way. I'd appreciate it that you'd speak to hearts in a very serious way tonight, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for praying with me. I appreciate that. In late 2008, the FBI raided the penthouse of a financial guru named Bertie Madoff and arrested him. How many of you know Bertie Madoff? Arrested him in uh, 2008. He was charged with embezzlement and left after confessing. Excuse me, and theft after confessing to investing the life savings of 4,800 people into a penny stock. The estimated total of his initial investment was just over 65 billion dollars. The problem was that he was never actually investing the funds to begin with. He was taking the money from new clients and helping pay back, uh, uh, excuse me, and helping pay back the interest to old clients and pocketing a percentage for himself. This scheme carried on longer than any other Ponzi scheme in American history. It carried on for over 16 years. Madoff was obviously a talented investor. Again, he got away with this for more than a decade and he could, uh, excuse me, and could have made a substantial amount of money had he just applied his abilities ethically as a professional investor. However, when asked why he didn't just apply himself and the abilities that he had, his response was that it wasn't as thrilling to be an ethical investor. He said that the constant fear of getting caught uh, far outweighed the feeling of doing an honest day's work. Of course, when everything came out And he was arrested. He was filled with major regret. Both of his sons have since died. One of lymphoma and the other committed suicide on the two-year anniversary of his father's arrest in 2010. Madoff, who is now sitting in prison where he will be for the rest of his life, said recently in an interview, listen to this. I could tell people anything enough times and eventually they would believe it. I even convinced my immediate family that my business was booming and times were great. The worst lies I ever told, however, were to myself. After I told myself the lies enough times, I found that it was almost as easy to convince, uh, convince myself, excuse me, I found that it was almost as easy to convince myself of the lies as it was to convince other people. Then he says this, the worst thing you can do is not believe the lies that other people tell you, but believe the lies that you tell yourself because down deep inside, you know the truth down deep inside, you know the truth. I'm talking about this conversation that Mr. Madoff had uh, with with himself in regards to the lies that he told himself. And again, he, he mentions that he could get anybody to believe anything, but what scared him the most, and the admonishment that he gives rotting in prison right now is this, not the lies that everybody else is going to tell you, don't believe the lies you will tell yourself. Don't listen to your heart, is what he's saying. Because if you tell yourself something enough times, you'll begin to believe your own lies. And so that's what I'd like to talk to you about tonight in our text, and we'll get right into it. We're gonna read this inward conversation that Solomon has with himself. And again, we're in the uh, uh, the series I've entitled Meaningless, and we're going through the book of Ecclesiastes, and I'm just curious, how many of you, this is your first night here, you haven't been here for the rest of the series, just a couple of you, okay? We've been going through the life of Solomon and looking at what he has to say uh, in, in the book of Ecclesiastes mainly, but really we're talking about a man who has. A, 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 a great amount of wisdom, a great amount of wealth, and he had accomplished some great works, yet at the end of his life, he comes to the conclusion that all is vanity, saith the preacher, all is vanity. There's Everything under the sun is worthless, it's meaningless. So again, in our text tonight, I'd like us to look at this inward conversation that Solomon has with himself, and as we unpack the text, I want us to see five lies that we tell ourselves. Five lies that we tell ourselves, the most damaging lies that affect Our lives are the ones we tell ourselves. First slide that I'd like us to look at that Solomon told himself was this. Number one, my education will distinguish me. My education will distinguish me. We mentioned this twice over the past two weeks, but Solomon pursued an education that brought him to the pinnacle of attainable knowledge. Solomon was a brilliant man, one of the most smartest men to ever live in human history. Solomon was passionate about about his pursuit of knowledge. I want you to look at uh, verse number 13 of chapter number one. It says, "And I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. This sore travail hath God given to the sons of man, uh, to uh, man to be exercised therewith, uh, therewith. I have been all the works. Excuse me. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. That which is crooked cannot be made straight." that which is wanting cannot be numbered. I communed with mine own heart saying, lo, I am come to great estate and have gotten more wisdom than all they that have been before me in Jerusalem. Yea, my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Uh, again Solomon has devoted his life to pursuit of knowledge he's a brilliant man and I mentioned this just a few weeks ago but from a boy from a very young man he was always in the temple and he was always being taught the word of God and always being taught in regards to the secular realm and all the things that you could uh, uh, learn and and so he's a very logicious man a very wise man and a very smart man if Solomon were to study animals he'd aspire to become a zoologist I believe If Solomon were to study plants, I believe he'd want to be a botanist. If Solomon were to study buildings, I believe he'd aspire to be an architect. If Solomon were to study history, I believe he'd aspire to be a great historian. If Solomon were to study medicine, I believe that he would aspire to be a great surgeon. If Solomon were to study great food, I believe that he'd aspire to be a chef at Chick-fil-A. I think that Solomon wanted to be proficient in everything that he said and everything that he did. He loved wisdom and he longed after wisdom and he was so, uh, devoting his life to try to gain wisdom. Solomon, again, was thirsty for more knowledge. He was always aspiring to continue advancing his education but really, and we talked about this last week, what was Solomon in, in, in search for? What was he looking for? Purpose. Solomon is trying to find purpose in life. But understand that this education wasn't a pursuit that Solomon wasn't eventually able to achieve. Now, Solomon might not have come to the, pic- uh, the pinnacle of all knowledge. Obviously, he didn't know everything, but human- humanly speaking, he was one of the most brilliant men to ever live uh, amongst humanity, and so obviously, he put education in his crosshairs and he achieved great knowledge. He achieved that as he would pursue knowledge. It was not something that was just beyond his reach that he could never grasp. It was actually something that he got a hold of. He achieved it. Again, he had one of the greatest educations in human history, but what did he have to say about it? Verse 17, and I gave my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is vexation of spirit, for in much wisdom is much grief, and uh, and he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. That's what Solomon had to say about this education that he had given his life to achieve. You know what it is? Vexation of spirit. The more that I know, the more my knowledge increases, the more sorrowful I become, the more grievous I become. Uh, That that term vexation of spirit, you know what that means? Vexation means this, the state of being annoyed, discouraged, frustrated, or consumed with worry. You know what we could describe that as? Depression, depression. Are you frustrated? Are you consumed with worry? Uh, Is it boggled down? Are you consumed uh, with discouragement? Are you annoyed? Uh, that's something that we would describe the symptom of, symptoms of in, in regards to depression. I believe Solomon was greatly depressed. Solomon is saying that the more I learn, the more depressed I become. The more knowledge I attain, the more uh, depressed I become. That's exactly why I've written off watching news. I mean, how many of you would agree the more that you watch news, the more and more discouraged you become? Especially in the day and age in which we live in. If you watch Fox News, you watch CNN, it doesn't matter what platform you watch, it's all discouraging. It's all discouraging, it doesn't matter what channel you watch, everything is discouraging news because good news doesn't sell. It's always discouraging. The lie that we can lend ourselves to believe is that just, uh, excuse me, the lie that we can lend ourselves to believe is that if we just know a little bit more, we'll find purpose. If we know just a little bit more, we'll find meaning to life. Solomon said that uh, that got him nothing but vexation of spirit and increased in sorrow increased in vexation of spirit, it it, it grieved his spirit. The more that he knew, the more discouraged he became. Lamar, you're making it out to be that God is against having an education. I am not against an education, nor is God. As a matter of fact, I believe He wants us to have a great education, and He desires that we would pursue an education. Uh, but it, not just any old education. Not just for the sake of knowing more. First Chronicles chapter twelve and verse thirty-two says this of the sons of Issachar. Here's what it says: and of the children of Issachar, which were men that under uh, excuse me, which were men that had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. So he says of the sons of Issachar, they were men that understood the times. They were men that had knowledge and understanding, but there's a very key reason why they had knowledge and understanding, and it says there, to know what Israel ought to do. So it wasn't that they just knew more, but they knew something for a purpose, and that was to do what is right and to do what is, uh, not to do what is wrong. I believe that God would have us know as much as we can about things in this world, but not simply so that we can have more knowledge, not simply so we can know all there is to know uh, in regards to whatever Ben Shapiro is saying on his show or whatever Fox News says on their show. I know all this all this information. That's not going to get you anything. It's not going to do anything for you. You ought to know it for a purpose. I believe we should know about the times. I'm not saying that we should plug our ears uh, to the things that are happening in this world, and I'm not just talking about politically. I'm talking about morally. I'm talking about everything under the sun. I believe. We ought to aspire to know, but not just to know it, but to know it for a reason. To know what we ought to do, or know what we ought not to do for some of us. Paul says it this way in 2 Timothy chapter three. We know this verse. 2 Timothy chapter three and verse number seven. It says, ever learning, and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. That describes our world. Ever learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. They've devoted their lives to attaining knowledge but they're never able, to come, uh, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. That is the truth, that it can only be found in the word of God in a relationship with him. Paul says it and Solomon says it, so I want you to ask your, yourself this question tonight. Am I believing the same lie as Solomon? Education will distinguish me. Now, I'm not just talking to young people either. I'm not just talking to people that are in high school that are aspiring to go maybe to a college or a university. I'm talking to everybody because again, we, we mentioned this last week. Everybody wants wisdom. Everybody wants knowledge. Ask yourself that question. Is it, is it that you're pursuing to give you purpose in life? Are you pursuing an education? Are you pursuing knowledge to give you purpose? You know what Solomon says? It'll get you nothing but depression and vexation of spirit. It's gonna get you nothing but gr- much grief and much sorrow. That's the first lie that he told himself. Education will distinguish me. Secondly. My entertainment will distract me. My entertainment will distract me. Solomon knew that there was no purpose to be found in entertainment. We'll give him that. Solomon understood and he was discerning enough to know I'm not gonna be able to find purpose in entertainment but you know what I'm gonna try to do? I'm gonna try to distract myself from the obvious problems that I'm dealing with. I'm gonna use entertainment and I'm gonna use the pleasures of life to try to maybe make myself feel a little bit better and I can be distracted from the fact that I'm in the depths of despair and great depression. So Solomon tries a few things, what does he try? First thing he tries is wild celebration. Wild celebration, I want you to look at chapter two and verse number one, it says, I said in mine heart, go to now, I will prove thee with mirth, therefore enjoy pleasure, and behold, this also is vanity, I said of laughter, it is mad, and of mirth, what doeth it? What doeth it, he he devotes to a life of partying. And knowing Solomon, we know this, this was no Pop Warner attempt at partying. I would imagine that Solomon, given all, his, all of his resources and all of his money, I'd imagine that if you were to walk down Solomon's palace whenever Solomon was throwing a party, it would look a lot like the Las Vegas Strip. I would imagine that, uh, again, this was not just something that you would throw or anything that we would be able to experience. This is Solomon, he's got more wisdom, he's got more money and he's got more housing and more resources. I'd imagine if Solomon's gonna throw a party, he's gonna throw it right. And I'd imagine that Solomon had the greatest of parties and he had the greatest of shows. But you know what Solomon realized after living the party life, he says it, this is also vanity. This is also vanity, this is mad, what do with it? In other words, Solomon is saying this wild celebration that I'm indulging in, meaningless, purposeless. It does not fill the void. Proverbs 14 verse number 13 it says, even in laughter the heart is sorrowful and the end of what, uh, excuse me, and and the end of that mirth is heaviness. You know who said that? Solomon. Even in laughter, the heart is sorrowful, and the end of that mirth is heaviness. So he tries wild celebration, what else does he try? You ready for this next one? I like this next one. Tries wine and Chick-fil-A. It's in the text, we're gonna see it right here. Tries wine and Chick-fil-A, look at verse number three. I sought in mine heart to give myself unto wine, Yet acquainting mine heart with wisdom and to lay hold on folly till I might see see what was that good for the sons of men which they should do under the heaven all the days of their life. Hey, pastor, he was a moderationist to begin with. He was a moderationist to begin with. He says, I aspired to try to drown out my sorrows at the bottom of the bottle, but you know what he said? Yet acquainting mine heart with wisdom. He realized very quickly that happiness and purpose and meaning and, and, and even distraction from the fact that your life is in despairs and shambles can't be found at the bottom of a bottle. I want you to go over to 1 Kings chapter 4 real quick. 1 Kings chapter 4. He tries wine and then he tries this, ready? First Kings chapter four and verse number uh, 22 it says, and Solomon's provision for one day, look at this, this is his provisions for one day. And Solomon's provisions for one day was 30 measures of fine flour and three score measures of meal, 10 fat oxen and 20 oxen out of the pastures and 100 sheep besides hearts and roebucks and uh, uh, fallow deer and fatted fowl. Not even Chick-fil-A could satisfy Solomon right there in the text, in fatted fowl. Solomon devotes his life, he's trying to distract himself from the fact that he's in great depression and he says, you know what, I'm gonna try wild celebration and then I'm gonna try to indulge myself in alcohol, I'm gonna have all of these different pleasures of life, but he comes to the conclusion, it's all vanity. He tries something else, it starts with a W, we know it, we mentioned it in week number one. He tries wives and concubines. Wives and concubines, look at 1 Kings chapter 11. Verse number one, it says, but King Solomon loved many strange women together with the daughters of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, uh, Edomites, Sidonians and Hittites of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, ye shall not go into them, neither shall they come in unto you for surely they will turn away your hearts Uh, your heart after their gods, Solomon clave unto these in love. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. That's 1,000 women in the life of Solomon. Solomon had 1,000 women. He had some 700 wives and 300 concubines. All this entertainment and pleasure in Solomon's life was there to try to distract him from the fact that Solomon was living a life that had absolutely no purpose at all. With every experience, Solomon was more and more convinced that he was believing the lie that he could distract himself from the pain of vexation of depression. Deep in the, in the darkest corner of depression you would find Solomon, rather than dealing with his problems, and we're gonna talk about that here in just a moment, he says, you know what? I'm gonna try to distract myself from the fact that I feel nothing inside. Great in the, in the depths of deep depression, ask yourself this question tonight. Am I believing the same lie as Solomon? that entertainment will distract me? Entertainment will distract me from what? Depression? Uh, uh, Hey, let's not pretend that Christians don't suffer from depression. Let's not pretend that people in this room are not suffering from depression. Ask yourself that question. Are you believing the lie that if you just distract yourself with entertainment, if you just put something in front of your face, that it's gonna distract you from the fact that you have no feeling inside? Solomon tried it, you know what he said? Vexation of spirit. It's worthless, it's meaningless, it's vanity. That was the second lie that he told him. The third lie he told himself was this, my endeavors will drive me. My endeavors will drive me. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter two and verse number four. I made me great works, I builded me houses, I planted me vineyards, I made me gardens and orchards and I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruits. I made me pools of water, uh, to water therewith the woods that bringeth forth trees. We'll stop reading there, we could keep going about all that Solomon is trying to accomplish. But you know what Solomon is trying to say? Solomon is is trying to say this, education couldn't distinguish me. And entertainment couldn't distract me, so I'm gonna start working. I'm gonna start working, I'm gonna make myself busy. I've poured myself into the labors and hard work that I've accomplished and done. You say, Lamar, are you telling me that God is against hard work? No, actually God's the inventor of hard work. He's the one who established it. He's the one who invented hard work, uh, but he never intended for work to be the goal, but rather a means to the goal. What's the goal? Well, what were we created to do? What were we created to do by our maker? And that's to bring honor and glory to our creator to bring glory to God, that's why we exist, that's the reason that we were created. Ernest Hemingway, the wealthy American novelist who would eventually commit suicide, and again, how many of you know Ernest Hemingway? How many would, would say, knowing Ernest Hemingway, that he lived quite a life? Quite a life that maybe many of us would try to attain in regards to the sights that he's seen and the places that he's traveled, wrote many books, but he eventually commits suicide. And this is what he said in his suicide note. He said, Life is just one blank thing after another. Uses an expletive. Life is just one blank thing after another. That comes from a man who committed suicide, a man who, humanly speaking, lived a full life. He said, Life is just one thing after another. Derek Kidner, Old Testament scholar, stated that what spoils the pleasures of life for us in our excuse me what spoils the pleasures of life for us is our hunger to get out of them more than they can ever deliver getting eternal and ultimate meaning out of temporal and temporary pursuits is destined to fail is that job you have a bad thing no not necessarily that depends on what you're striving to get out of it Depends on what you're trying to glean out of that occupation that you have. Is that job uh, or the work that you do, is that what you're pursuing to find purpose in life? Solomon tried that, you know what he said? Purposeless. Vanity provides no meaning. Ask yourself that question tonight. Am I believing the same lie as Solomon that my my endeavors will drive me? Hey, I'm all for having a job, I have one. I think that a job is a wonderful thing to have and I believe that you should go as far as you possibly can in your workplace. I believe that you should try to attain as much as you possibly can out of this life but I can tell you right now that promotion is not gonna satisfy you. That next thing is not gonna satisfy you. Whether or not you can get your business off the ground, it's not gonna satisfy you. Ask Solomon, he tried it. The fourth lie, fourth lie that he tells himself, number four is my extravagance will define me. My extravagance will define me. Look at verse number 10 back in our text of Ecclesiastes chapter two. And whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them, I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion of all my labor. Solomon defers to a life of extravagant living. Solomon says, you know what? Entertainment's not distracting me. My endeavors are not driving me. I'm not able to find purpose in any of those aspects of life. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm gonna pull out my wallet and I'm gonna buy everything that I could possibly imagine and anything that I'd ever want. I'm gonna buy every single desire of my heart. How extravagant. I want you to look at 1 Kings chapter 10. 1 Kings chapter 10 and verse number 14 it says, and I'm going to read a really large portion of scripture, but I want you to pay attention to all the different things and kind of visualize all the things that I'm reading. It says, now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was six hundred three score and six talents of gold. Besides that, he had of the merchmen and of the traffic of the spice merchants and of all the kings of uh, Arabia uh, and of the governors of the country. And uh, King Solomon made 200 great... Uh, Uh, 200 targets of beaten gold, 600 shackles of gold went to one target, and he made 300 uh, shields of beaten gold, three pounds of gold went to one shield, and the king put them in the house Uh, Of the forest of Lebanon moreover the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with the best gold the throne had six steps and on the top of the throne was uh, the round uh, was round behind and there were stays on the uh, either on either side of the place of the seat look at this and two lions that's cool and two lions stood beside the stays and 12 lions stood there on the side and on the other upon the six steps there was not the like made in any kingdom. And all King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold. And of all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. Look at this. None were of silver. It was nothing accounted of in the days of Solomon. I had to look that up. Maybe silver is not valuable in the days of Solomon. Actually, no, it was a very valuable commodity, but it wasn't valuable enough for Solomon. I stopped reading, but we have not even begun to scratch the surface on just how extravagant Solomon lived. I mean, I'm serious, he had all the wealth that anybody could imagine, so you you could imagine that there was no limitations in regards to what Solomon could buy for himself to try to find purpose, try to find pleasure. Verse 23, it says, so King Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth for riches and for wisdom. Hold on a second, I want us to back up and I want us to answer a question. We know this, Solomon was appointed to build the temple of God, right? So Solomon's appointed to build the temple of God, and how long does it take for Solomon to build the temple? It says it in 1 Kings chapter 6 and verse number 38. It says in the 11th year in the month bull, uh, which is the 8th month, was the house finished throughout all the parts thereof. He's referencing the temple of God. And according to all the fashions of it, so was he seven years in building it. So it took Solomon seven years to build the temple of, of God and what a magnificent building that it was. I'd imagine uh, if we were able to see it, it would be an extravagant sight to see and, and by the way, I think that the house of God should be of high priority and high esteem and I think that we ought to put time and ought to put effort into how we upkeep this place and I'm sure that they also dealt with bathroom remodel issues. I mean, it took them seven years, so I'd imagine they probably spent 9, 10, 11 months in their bathroom re- renovation process as well. But nonetheless, Solomon took seven years to build the temple of God. And as a matter of fact, it was so extravagant that Queen, Queen Sheba came and said, the half could not even be told just how magnificent and how wonderful the temple of God really is. But how long did Solomon take to build his own house? How long did Solomon take to erect his own temple? Very next verse in 1 Kings chapter 7 and verse number 1. But Solomon was building his own house 13 years and he finished all his houses. That gives us an idea of just how extravagant Solomon's kingdom really was. I'm not going to draw a parallel to the fact that it only took him eight years to build the temple of God and 13 years. If you want to deduct the application from that, go ahead. I'm not going to do that tonight. But nonetheless, I simply point that out to say that Solomon took the building of his temple very seriously, the building of his kingdom very seriously. I'd imagine if the TV show Cribs were were around back then and they were to do an episode or they were to do a a segment on Solomon's house, it'd probably take him a whole season just to cover his bathroom. I'd imagine that his his temple, again, we read about all the gold and all the ivory and all the lions and everything that was uh, in Solomon's temple. It was an extravagant thing. Solomon didn't just have a yacht, by the way. He had a fleet of yachts. Look at verse 22. We skip this verse. It says, For the king... Uh, 1 Kings chapter 10 and verse 22, it says, For the king had, uh, had at sea a navy of Tarshish with a navy of Harem. which, uh, excuse me, once in three years came the navy of Tarshish bringing gold and silver and ivory and apes and peacocks. I mean, Solomon didn't just have a life. He had an abundant life. Solomon had everything that money could have to offer. He even had peacocks. I mean, I think that's kind of cool. Solomon had everything that money could possibly give you to buy, Solomon had acquired all the wealth that you could have, yet he was unsatisfied. He, he was left with this empty void and this empty feeling. He was still in the depths of despair and depths of depression. Ask yourself that question tonight. Am I believing the same lie as Solomon? Am I believing the same lie as Solomon? My extravagance will define me. mentioned it last week, but we're never fulfilled. We live in a perpetual state of unfulfillment. And everything that we pursue in life, usually it's monetary. Usually it's physical. Usually it's something that we're trying to attain that money can buy. How many of you have ever bought something, i would be honest, how many of you have ever bought something that's made you happy for the rest of your life? None of us. You know why? Because earthly possessions were never meant to fill that void. Solomon would be the first to tell you that a life lived out in pursuit of things that money can buy will leave you just as dissatisfied as if you had nothing. That was the fourth lie. The last lie, I want to set some groundwork. Uh, Like I said before, I'm unqualified to preach this next point, I'm not a psychiatrist. Uh, I I barely make the mark as an assistant pastor. I've only been doing this for a couple of months, but I want to take this very seriously because I know that somebody, I know a couple of individuals that are struggling with this tonight, and so I hope you'll give me grace. I don't want to fumble anything, and I don't want to sow any kind of false narrative. I want to be very careful on how I handle this next part. Here's the other lie that Solomon told himself. Number five, my existence is discretionary. My existence is discretionary. Ecclesiastes chapter two and verse number 11. Then I looked on all the works that my hand had wrought and on the labor that I had labored to do and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit. Then he says this, and there was no prophet under the sun. Skip down to verse number 17. He says it so plainly. Therefore I hated life because the works that is wrought under the sun, is grievous unto me, for all is vanity and vexation of spirit. We we mentioned this just a few weeks ago, and we defined that term under the sun, and it simply means life on earth, right? So life on earth. So Solomon is saying that his life amounts to nothing. And because of this evaluation, he says it himself, he hated his own existence. He hated himself. As Solomon looked back on his life and all the works that he had wrought with his hands, his conclusion that life was that life was discretionary. I could say it this way, that life was optional. That it was optional. I'm not sure, are you saying, Lamar, that uh, that Solomon was suicidal? I really don't know. I read a couple of commentaries a couple of weeks ago, even this past week, and I was looking at the life of Solomon, and there's really no scriptural evidence to support whether or not Solomon was suicidal. Some people believe that he was, but you know what he did say? I hate my life. I hate my life. It'd be very easy to derive from Solomon's life after experiencing all that he's experiencing and in coming to the conclusions that he's come to thus far, it would be not far-fetched, would it, to believe that Solomon might have been suicidal? Maybe Solomon looked at his life and he looked at it through, through this lens. It would be better if I was never born. It'd be better if I never existed. It'd be better if I never breathed another breath of life. Here's the lie that Solomon bought into, that life was optional. Maybe it'd be better if I never existed. Ask yourself this question tonight. Am I believing the same lie as Solomon? Am I believing the same lie as Solomon that my existence is discretionary, it's optional? Uh, again, I want to be very careful how, how, I, how I tread on this topic because suicide's a big deal. It's a very serious thing, and just like I said about depression, don't think for a second that Christians don't have suicidal thoughts because they do. When I was young, uh, there was a young man, his name was Hunter. My first name is Hunter, by the way. And uh, there was another young man, his name was Hunter. He's probably about five or six years younger than me. And uh, Hunter, uh, his grandparents were faithful members of my church. And he had a brother, his name was Duke, just a couple years younger than him. And I can remember uh, for some reason, I think it was just because I had his name, he looked up to me. And I can remember his grandma coming and he called, couldn't pronounce his words properly. He called me to Utahana, which is the other Hunter, okay? I remember him coming, and, and man, his parents tried so desperately hard to keep him active and keep him in church. And the reason being is because his dad, Greg Jr., was not faithful. Uh, there's some, some uh, they're not really sure if he was a Christian or if he was saved. Uh, he had several different uh, uh, lovers and had several different wives. He'd been divorced five or six times, and he was only like 30, 31, 32 years old. And I remember growing up with Hunter and seeing him grow and kind of just depart from the Lord and kind of go off when he started to live with his dad, stop living with his grandparents. And I remember just being real burdened about that. Two years ago, my mom calls me on a Sunday morning. She said, did you hear about Greg Jr.? And I said, no, what happened? She said, well, Hunter came home from school yesterday, or excuse me, two days ago. And he walked in and he found his dad laying on the ground and he'd taken a revolver and taken his life. And Hunter was only, you know, just, he's a couple years younger than me. Duke's even younger than him, still in high school. Can I, remember, I can remember my mom telling me about that, and I remember when I was in high school, I remember hearing somebody in my church say, ah, oh, Christians don't suffer from depression. Suicide's a real thing. It's a, it's a big deal, and I think that there's some people even struggling here tonight with thoughts of suicide. Maybe you're not struggling with it right now, but at some time in your life, you'd struggle with the thought of, maybe my life is better off if I'd never existed. Can I tell you something? Genesis 1, 27 says, for God created man in his own image. We were created in the likeness of God himself. God created us so intricately, so much so that he created us in his likeness. Isaiah 64 and verse number eight, it says, but now, O Lord, thou art our father. We are the clay and thou art the potter and we all are the work of thy hand. I'm a testament to God's handiwork. God created me exactly how he wanted to create me. Uh, he wanted to create me. Job chapter 33 and verse number four. The spirit of God hath made me and the breath of the almighty hath given me life. Bible says that every good gift and every per- perfect gift cometh from above and life is no exception. Life is a gift from God. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible is Psalms 139 and verse number 14. I will praise thee for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works And uh, that my soul knoweth right well. Never buy into the lie that the devil's trying to tell you that you don't matter. Never buy into the lie that the devil's trying to sell some people, and even some of our young people that are struggling, I believe, with this. Never buy into the lie that no one cares. Because I can tell you with firsthand experience that there is one that cares. His name is Jesus. He's the one who created you. I'm gonna be going, uh, I'm going over uh, my series in in Sunday school, it's hymnology, and this week, man, I I was just broken as I read the story of no one ever cared for me like Jesus. I don't wanna ruin it for those who are in my class, we'll talk about it next week, but I can tell you right now, I'm a testament to that. No matter how low life gets, no matter how discouraged you become, no matter how depressed you become, just know this, you are fearfully and you are wonderfully made, and God loves you. Never forget that. John chapter 10 and verse number 10, it says the thief, that's the devil. The thief cometh not but for to steal, kill, and destroy, and that's exactly what he does. And he's very good at it. The Bible also says that Satan is the father of all lies. And Satan would love to convince some people in this room that you don't matter. God, who is the giver of life, to begin with, desires that you have life, and the rest of that verse says that he came that you might have life more abundantly. In closing, I'd like to answer one question. And it's kind of just built up at this point. Who was feeding Solomon these lies? Who was feeding Solomon these lies? It says it repeatedly in our text, his heart. His heart. Variations of the term, my heart or mine heart, appears over 18 times in the book of Ecclesiastes alone. Solomon fell prey to the biggest lie that the devil has ever told anybody, and that's this. Just listen to your heart. Just listen to your heart, whatever feels right in your heart, that's what you ought to do. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, the heart is deceitful uh, deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who could know it? The biggest lie that anyone has ever told themselves is this, do what feels right to you. Just go with your gut. Just listen to your heart. That thought process is what led Solomon to pursue an education as a means to find fulfillment. That thought process is what led Solomon to distract himself with entertainment as a means to dull the pain of deep depression. That thought process is what led Solomon to work his life away in hopes to find meaning. That thought process is what led Solomon to try to buy happiness with a life of extravagant living. And it was that thought process that eventually led Solomon to look at his life and come to the conclusion that he hated his own existence. He hated it. All his vanity and vexation of spirit. But that's what, getting, that's what following your heart will get you. That's exactly what following your heart is going to glean. And so here's the invitation, and we're done. I'm just gonna ask one simple question, and we'll go directly into the invitation time, but I, I want us to boil it down into one simple question. I want you to ask yourself this question. What lies is my heart telling me to try to deter me from finding meaning with Christ at the center of my life? What lies am I telling myself that is deterring me from finding meaning when Christ is at the center? Ask yourself that question. If you'd stand to your feet, we'll have a verse of invitation, and that's really the invitation right there. Ask yourself this question. What lies am I believing? What lies am I feeding myself that are deterring me from finding purpose and finding meaning with Christ at the center. Satan would love nothing more to, than to feed us with the lies that he fed Solomon and that we can find fulfillment and we can find meaning with everything else save Jesus Christ and that's impossible. You can't. So if the Lord's dealing with you, I'd encourage you to come forward. We'll say a word of prayer and then we'll go directly into the invitation. Lord, I pray that you'd be with us tonight. I do